The following message, entitled, Grab Your Sword, We Are in a War, Part 13 of the series, United, was given by Joe Ryer on the 2nd of October, 2011, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Joe. If I haven't met you yet, um, I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church, and thank you for coming this morning. Um, you are coming actually on the tail end of a series in the book of Ephesians. This will be our final message in the book of Ephesians. So if this is your first Sunday. Thanks so much for coming this morning. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. In a moment, we're going to read from verse 10 down through verse 20. Before I begin reading the passage, I want to begin reading an account of the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. J.J. liked that. (laughs) So listen up. The attack on Pearl Harbor. The surprise was complete. The attacking planes came in two waves. The first hit its target at 7.53 a.m. The second at 8.55. By 9.55 It was all over. By 1 p.m., the carriers that launched the planes from 270 miles off the coast were heading back to Japan. Behind them, they left chaos. 2,403 dead, 188 destroyed planes, and a crippled Pacific fleet that included eight damaged or destroyed battleships. In one stroke, the Japanese action silenced the debate that had divided Americans ever since the German defeat of France left England alone to fight against the Nazi terror. Approximately three hours later, Japanese plans began began a day-long attack on American facilities in the Philippines. Farther to the west, the Japanese struck at Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Thailand in a coordinated attempt to, to use surprise in order to inflict as much damage as quickly as possible to strategic targets. And we all know what happened after that. The next day, on December 8th, 1941, within less than an hour after a stirring six-minute address by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Congress voted, with only one member dissenting, that a state of war existed between the United States and Japan and empowered the president to wage war with all the resources of the country. And then we know how the story unfolds. Well... This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that I think this, this account of what happened in, in World War II at Pearl Harbor sets the stage for, because the stuff that I've read, and I'm sure many of you have read, of the day before the attacks happened at Pearl Harbor, it was a beautiful sunny day. So if you were around at 7 in the morning, you would have thought, man, this is a beautiful sunny day, a great day to enjoy, particularly if you didn't have to work. But then, within two hours, life as they knew it, and life as our country knew it, was about to radically change. And what happened in in these series of events is we began to be a part of World War II. And we were called to action, and our president led us into war. But the reason that Pearl Harbor was calm that Sunday morning... Because at that point, the U.S. 
didn't know that they were at war with Japan. It wasn't until attacks occurred that the reality of war set in. Well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to, in a sense, call us all as Christians to realize that we are in a war, that we are in a serious war, a war that's much more significant and monumental than even World War I or World War II. And he's going to not only call us to attention that we are at war, but he wants to equip us for that war. And through these last verses, verses in the letter to Ephesians, he's going to prepare us each as individual Christians and as a church and how we're to fight this war. So look in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. We read verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for every page of the Bible. Thank you for these last verses in the book of Ephesians. And Lord, we pray as we go through these verses, Holy Spirit, you would awaken us to the reality of the spiritual war that we're in the middle of. Lord, encourage us, Jesus, that you are our captain. You are the one at the point. And you are powerful and strong. And Lord, equip us as Christians to make it through this fallen world and resist temptation and resist the devil and resist all that would come against us and ultimately against your name. Lord, strengthen us as Christians this morning. Lord, help us to be in faith that you who began the good work in us will bring it to completion. Holy Spirit, pray for your help and your power this morning. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the title this morning for the last message, is United. Grab your sword, we are in a war. Grab your sword, we are in a war. 
In some ways, this passage is going to appeal to those of you who love war movies, books about war, war scenes. If that's not your thing, just hang in there. But Paul is going to use a lot of war language and a lot of visual images of the battlefield. And if we could change the backdrop behind me this morning, we would, we would leave a comfortable, warm building and go out to the battlefield. And as we look around, we would see enemies up on hilltops looking to come after us. And that's the image that Paul has in his mind as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And as Paul's writing, he's in prison. He's in chains because of his faith in Jesus. And so he, he has this incredible image of a Roman soldier and all that a Roman soldier would be equipped for battle with. And he's going to make spiritual connections for us. But before we're prepared, before we're equipped, what he wants them to know and what he wants us to know in a war. We are in a very serious war. And from the Bible, I want to convince us this morning that we are in a spiritual war. And there are great things at stake. And there are enemies that would love nothing else than to destroy our relationship with the Lord and to destroy the name of the Lord. So look at verse 10 through 12. Finally, Paul's at the end of the letter. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other people, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. John MacArthur sums up this passage this way. He says, the true Christian described in Ephesians 1 through 3, who lives in the faithful life described in chapters 4 through 6, can be sure that he will be involved in the spiritual warfare described in chapter 6, 10 through 20. The faithful Christian life is a battle. It is a warfare on a grand scale. Because when God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. What John MacArthur is doing here is capturing what we've learned for the last several months in the book of Ephesians. That we have been rescued by an awesome and mighty God. And then that great God calls us to live a godly life in response to what we've received. And now, he wants us to know, it's not without resistance that you're going to do this Christian life. There's a battle. There's a warfare that you're going to experience. But you might be thinking, Joe, my life does not seem this way. You know, I'm 18 years old. My life's pretty good. I really have believed in Jesus. I have great mom and dad. I like doing fun things with my friend. Am I really in a sport, spiritual war? Are there really unknown beings who are scheming against me? I think from this passage, the answer is yes. All of us are really in a spiritual war. And we're going to see as, as we go through this passage that our enemy 
is fierce. Our enemy is no other than Satan himself and his minions, his demons that answer to his call. And if you've been coming to church for a while or for years, you might think, well, this sounds like an unusual message for a Sunday morning from you guys. But what, what we love about preaching through books of the Bible is we end up preaching on subjects we may otherwise just not get to. But we want to wrestle through these verses to see what does God want to teach us about our great enemy of soul. Paul says it this way in verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What he's doing there, he's describing Satan and all those who are under Satan, who primarily exist to destroy the name of the Lord and destroy his people. So I think you can deduce from this passage that Satan hates God and he hates those of us who have called on the name of Jesus. Hates us with a passion. Committed from the beginning to destroy anyone who would have a relationship with the Lord. And Paul here warns us against Satan's schemes. What are some of the schemes that Satan would use to mess with us who have faith in Jesus? I think one we see right in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. You remember what happened? Adam and Eve are there. God made them. They're enjoying the Lord. And God gives them one rule. He says, do not eat from this tree. Eat, eat anything you want. Just don't touch this one. So then Satan slithers in. What's the first thing he asks? He said, did God, did God really say that? That's not what God really said. I know that's what you think he said. That's not what he really said. So a scheme of Satan is to twist the Bible, is to twist the truth of God's word, to make it sound similar, but very different. And he's been doing that since the very beginning. And he can be doing that in our lives as we read the Bible. Did God really say he was going to be faithful? You sure that wasn't just for a few people? Is that really for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus? Another thing that Satan is a master at is making evil things look very good and innocent. Think of a modern day example of you see in the news or you read in the newspaper or see on the internet that you know, so-and-so is getting a divorce. And they're getting divorced because they're just not compatible anymore. Well, that sounds very innocent. You know, they got married. Now they're just different. They have different hobbies, different preferences. Well, that's making something evil look good. Divorce is not God's plan. Now, the Bible does have some exceptions for justifiable reasons to get divorced. But... Not being compatible is definitely not one that's in the Bible. And so it, it, it minimizes something that's very serious according to God's word. Another thing that Satan does is he makes the world look so enticing. One of the things Satan would love for all of us in this room to do is just live for this life. Live for fun things in this world. It's not wrong to enjoy fun things, but we never want to live for fun things. Satan would love us to... Th- to believe that God does not even exist. 
that this world is all that there is. And when we die, it's all over. He'd love us to believe that. But that's not what God's word teaches. Satan makes the world look very, very enticing. He makes it sparkle and dazzle and he draws us in. Primarily, one of Satan's greatest schemes is just to destroy us as Christians. To come in and wreck our faith. First Peter 5 says it this way, Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's a destroyer. He's looking for Christians to slip up so he can devour us and he can wreak havoc on our faith. Another scheme that Satan loves to do is he loves to accuse us, to whisper in our ears things like, God doesn't really love you. Oh, he loves a lot of people, but you're not one of them. He likes to accuse us with things like, I know Jesus died on the cross for sins, but not sins as bad as the ones that you have just committed. He likes to accuse us with, if people in the room knew what you did, they wouldn't want you to be around. They wouldn't want to have fellowship with you. He likes to tell us lies and accuse us. And you can see, left unchecked, without having a proper way to fight against this, this can destroy us. Satan loves to isolate us from one another so that he can get in there and wreak havoc in our minds. But Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these rulers, against these authorities, these spiritual forces, these evil in the heavenly places. That doesn't mean there's evil in heaven. It just means the heavenly places, the place above earth, the place above the sky. The ESV study Bible captures our enemy this way. It says the list of spiritual rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers gives a sobering glimpse of the devil's allies. The spiritual forces of evil who are exceedingly powerful in their exercise of cosmic powers over this present darkness. And yet, Scripture makes clear that the enemy host is no match for the Lord, who has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I in no way want to scare us from the Bible. As a new Christian, I was mistakenly taught and picked up that that Satan and God were equals. One was good, one was bad. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God is uncreated and all-powerful. And Satan is one of his fallen creatures who wants to be him, but isn't allowed to be him. And so they're not, they're not on the same playing field at all. I, and what helped me in my early days as a Christian, when I didn't know much about the Bible was just a simple illustration someone told me. He said, you know, Satan is like a barking dog that's on a short leash. And God's the owner. God's the captain. God's the one in charge. And Satan will bark. And he'll try to destroy. But God has him by the neck. He can't go very far. And as I'm going through this part, I realize there are some of you who are pretty young in this room. And I'm thinking of my, my own kids if they were in this room. You don't need to be afraid of Satan and his demons. They're a real thing. But God is big and strong 
and powerful. And your mom and dad trust a big and powerful God. And you too can trust a big, powerful God. But we need to know our enemy so that we can be prepared for the fight. Which brings us to the second point. We must be equipped for every battle. Because we have a fierce enemy. Because we have one who would love nothing more than to destroy us and shame the name of Jesus. We have to be prepared to fight. Now, depending on your background of Christianity, you may be thinking at this point, Paul is going to tell us to bind and cast demons. I think you're going to be surprised how Paul wants us to fight. I, my early days as Christians, I, I think I bound every demon in the entire world because all I did was think about demons and try to bind demons. And I know there are some of you in this room that I would have taught you to do the same thing. As I've studied the Bible, my understanding of how we fight this fight has changed significantly. And you're going to see in this passage, in verses 13 through 18, he's, Paul's going to equip us. He's going to tell us how to fight. But he's, but he's going to tell us in a way that I think may be a bit surprising to some of us. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Paul's saying, because we have a great enemy, therefore, take up the whole armor of God and stand firm. The image that's captured in verse 13 is the image of a battle scene. We're on the battlefield, and as we look out, there's a charging army coming towards us. And Paul wants us to stand firm. He wants us to hold the line. And so there's this fierce army coming, and God's telling us, stand firm. Do not move from your position in Jesus Christ. Because if we stand firm, equipped by the Lord, we're not going to be plowed over. We're not going to be destroyed. And Paul's going to teach us how to do that. Because I can't imagine anything more frightening than seeing that scene of the army coming at us with swords and guns and missiles. And, and I'm standing there, you're standing there, and we're to stand firm, but we have no weapons. We have no protection of defense. We're just standing there. And if that was the case, if we had no armor, if we had no protection, I know what I would do. I would run as fast as I can from that enemy the other direction. But Paul is going to tell us how God has equipped us to stand firm, to make it. And as he talks about this full armor, what Paul has in mind is a Roman soldier. And maybe the Roman soldier that's watching him while he's in prison as he writes this letter. But he has a Roman soldier in mind and the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. But he also has many Old Testament ideas, primarily from the book of Isaiah, that are going to enter in and make these physical armor pieces into spiritual realities for Christians. So since we're in a war, we have to be equipped for every battle. And Paul wants us to stand firm in this full armor. So the question for us is, what is this armor? 
How do we put it on? How do we apply it? Verse 14, he's going to tell us the first piece of the armor that we need to be equipped with. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first thing we need to do, the first thing a Roman soldier would do as he's heading to battle, he needed to tighten up his belt. He needed to pull up his tunic, tighten up his belt, so he was ready to move very quickly into battle. And the belt was very important for the soldier. Now the connection Paul's making for us is our belt is the belt of truth. So if we're going to make it in this world that has Satan and his minions coming after us and has this real attractive allure for us that appeals to our sinful nature, if we're going to make it in a way that pleases the Lord, the first thing that we need to fasten up is the truth of God's Word. We need to hold on and tighten up and believe this book. We need to believe the truth in this book. And so this really is the foundation for all that Paul is going to talk about as we go through the different pieces of our armor. It begins with a God who speaks through his Bible and he has given us his word. And so as we see the enemy approaching, Paul says, tighten up your belt. Fasten on the truth. Become very familiar with this book because this book will help you fight that enemy. The second point, the second part of our armor in verse 14 is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So after the belt was secure, the Roman soldier would then put on a pretty heavy breastplate that would cover both the front and the back of the soldier. It would cover all the vital organs. So if the if there's an arrow coming from the front, it would protect their heart and their lungs. If the arrow was coming from the back, it would also protect them. It covered their core and protected them. Paul's telling us our breastplate of righteousness our breastplate is to be a breastplate of righteousness. In other words, the way we should be armed and protected for battle is to live a godly life, to respond to this God who has rescued us by saying, Lord, I want to follow you and I want to obey you. And the Holy Spirit himself is committed to making us more righteous over the years, making us look more like Jesus. But godly living is essential to fight this fight. It's essential. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you have major sin areas in your life. But you're not going to make it very far in the battle if you're ensnared and entangled into all sorts of sin. Godly living protects us. It's a breastplate of righteousness. As a teenager, I was not a Christian. And as a freshman IEP, I was not a Christian. So one of the realities was I did many very bad things, and a number of them were very illegal. So whenever during that time I would see a police officer, I did not like seeing police officers. And I would hide from police officers. Or if I was driving my car, I would turn off onto another road. But something really strange happened when I became a Christian. At the age of 19, Jesus saved me, forgave me of all my sins. And I can remember meeting John Scherf, a member of our church who was a police officer. I thought, I had that initial 
uh-oh, there's a police officer. Then I thought, I'm doing nothing wrong. I have done nothing wrong. And, and so I need not fear the police officer. Well, the change in my life that Jesus had done changed how I could relate to a police officer. There was no more fear. So yesterday, my family and I are at the homecoming parade. I see three police officers. I walk right by them. How are you doing, guys? Thanks for being here. That's great. I don't have to fear because I'm not doing anything wrong. Now, the guys across the street that they were watching very closely, they had to fear because <laughs> they were doing some things that were wrong. But the point is, for a soldier, for someone who is a follower of Jesus, how we live matters. How we live protects us against the accusations of Satan, against the lies, against the schemes. And you think of any story in, in history or, or any movie about war, the enemy camp is always looking for a corrupt soldier. They're always looking for one who's kind of shaky, who might be turning to the other side of the battle. And when Satan and his demons catch wind of that, oh, they're coming right to our door. Oh, so you're thinking, thinking about doing that sin. You're thinking about talking and saying bad things about other Christians. Oh, let me feed that for a while. Let me encourage you in that. Because, because it's a weakness in the armor. It's like taking the, having the breastplate and just setting it aside for a while. We're now vulnerable. It doesn't mean you won't make it to heaven, but it does mean you're going to be crawling in with arrows shot through you. So godly living matters and is to be a great protection for a Christian. We'll never be perfect in this life, but we should grow by the grace of God in the image of Christ. We should look more like Jesus next year than we did this year. And as we grow, it's going to protect us. Paul has more armor to tell us about. The next one might be one that you wouldn't immediately think of. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul's going to the footwear of the Roman soldier. For a Roman soldier, they had a great advantage because they had a particular kind of boot. It was a half boot, had spikes in it that allowed them to travel much faster than people that didn't have those shoes. It allowed them to have a great advantage when they got into war. And Paul is saying, our footwear, in a sense, is the gospel of peace. The good news that Jesus lived a sinless life and died as our substitute on the cross. And for all who have trusted in Jesus, we now have peace with God. We are made right with God. And we are to bring that gospel of peace. That's to make us able to travel quickly in the battle. Because we have a great hope. We know whose side we are on. We were once all on Satan's side. We all were dead in our sins and ruled by the prince of this air, by Satan himself. But then God transplanted us into the, his kingdom on his side. And now we have this gospel of peace to share and to drive us into battle and to not be afraid because we know that we have peace with the living God because Jesus died for our sins. So we can go into battle ready. 
Now he's going to go back to defense in verse 16. He says the following. In all circumstances, so never put this one down, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now for a Roman soldier, the shield that they're talking about is not a round, circular, small shield. But it's a shield that was about two feet wide and four to six feet tall. That for a Roman soldier, they could hide behind the shield and it would protect their entire body. So as the flaming arrows of the enemy would sail in, they would just crouch down, get behind the shield, and the arrows would hit the shield and extinguish all the flaming darts. It was a great protection. It was a large shield. And Paul's saying here, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. So what that that means for us, our shield of faith is trusting in our God, believing His Word, believing His promises. And as we do that, as the arrows, flaming arrows come in at us, we can battle those with the truth of God's Word, with the shield of faith. So let's say you are tempted to sin. Arrows launched. It's on fire. It's coming to you. And you're having thoughts, well, maybe, maybe no one will ever know, and I'll only do it once. But then you recall God's word that says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. And all of a sudden, the shield goes up, the arrow hits, it's extinguished, and you're safe. Or another arrow comes. God doesn't love you. He can't love you because of what you've done. He does not want you. He does not accept you. The arrows are coming. They're flying at you. That you pick up your shield of faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I'm calling on you. You promise you'll save me. Arrow hits It's extinguished. The Bible says in the book of John that Jesus won't cast anyone out who comes to him. Jesus, I know I'm a mess, but you say in your word, if I come to you, you will not cast me out. The shield of faith goes up. The flaming arrow is extinguished. And so you see how we can be protected by God's word and belief and trust in God's word. Paul continues with the armor. Now he's going to describe our helmet. The end of verse 16. And take up the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet for a Roman soldier, it was a pretty serious helmet. It came down around their face. Not much was showing but their eyes. And the primary reason they wore the helmet wasn't so much for the arrows, but it was for guys on horses with very large swords that would come and attack from the top and try to destroy them from the top. And so the, sh- the helmet would protect from attack. And Paul tells us something incredible here. He says, take up the helmet of salvation. In other words, meaning, if you have 
turned to Jesus, trusted in him. You're saved. You are saved. You not only are on the winning side, but in the end, Jesus wins and you're going to be with him. You are absolutely secure in your salvation. Put that helmet on and boldly go out into battle because you're saved. All sins are forgiven. No more wrath or judgment for you. You have the helmet of salvation. You can go in to battle boldly. And you can feel as Paul's writing this, I imagine what he wants to do is go get in another ship and tell another lost group of people about Jesus because he was so confident in his armor. He was so confident that he was saved and forgiven. And he was so confident that God was going to win in the end. So he's put on the helmet of salvation. But no armor would be complete without a weapon. So the final piece of the armor Paul's going to tell us about is our sword. We need a weapon. And God has given us an incredible weapon. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The image here is not a real massive sword. It's a short sword, a short Roman sword that you could wield very easily in battle. And Paul is saying, Christian, you need to get your sword out and get ready to fight. And so, it wasn't to be kept and protected. It was to be out and to be ready, both for offense and for defense. And so, for us, we have the Word of God. It is to be our great weapon as we fight the darts that fly at us, as we care for one another, encourage one another in the Christian life and the battles that we face. But it's also to be one we share boldly. The good news of Jesus. And as we pull it out and tell people, we get to see what the Bible has shown and church history has shown century after century after century that God honors His gospel. It's very powerful. and People will be saved and churches will be started and communities are changed all because people had the sword out and they were sharing it and applying it. So for us though, I think the starting point is we've got to make sure we are opening this book and reading this book. We can't have the sword down in its case. We need to pull it out and read it and meditate on it and believe it and trust in it. It has nothing to do with our standing with God. Our righteousness, our acceptance with God is because Jesus died for us and rose for us. But it does have to do with how well we're going to make it in this life in this battle. And so I know many of you have been Christians for many decades, and you have proved this to be true. You have proved these verses to be true. You have fought in many battles. Many arrows have come your way, and you have held tight to this book. You have applied it and believed it. And you can honestly say, it's true, and God has kept you as you've done these things. Because Jesus is awesome and powerful. But we're in a war. We need to put on our armor. And the final point of this message is in verse 18 through 20, which is simply we must watch and pray. Since we're in a war, since we have a fierce enemy, Paul says in verse 18, 
praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought. We must watch. We must stay alert. You know the naval officers the day after Pearl Harbor were much more alert. They were much more watchful. They knew a great enemy had emerged and they were watching and they were alert. And that's how we are to be as Christians. And then we're to pray for one another. It says, to that end, keep alert. Make supplication for all the saints. So as Christians, we're to pray for each other. So if you're talking to one another and you someone shares a trial that they're in, I think a great way to, to do this, to apply this, is can I just pray for you right now? I'd love to pray for you and ask God to help you. If you're tempted to sin, call a friend. Ask them to pray for you. And you, you'll experience God's grace coming. We're to, we're to watch and we're to pray. Lord, bring your kingdom in a very powerful way into Indiana County, surrounding areas. We're to watch. We're to pray for one another. And then lastly, Paul says something a little surprising. He says, verse 19, And also, pray for me, that my words may, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel. So I think a way we can apply this is, is pray for Christian leaders. As your pastors, we, we love you to pray for us. Pray that we would be bold. Pray that we would be preaching this word boldly, with great courage. Pray that we, more importantly, or as important, we would be applying it to our own lives. Pray for all the Christian leaders that you know. So that God would use them and God's kingdom would advance in significant ways. We're in a great war. Jesus wins that war. And we are with Jesus. He wants us to be equipped. As we do the things we talked about, we're going to be equipped. And then he wants us to just watch and pray. And as we do that, as a church, as individuals, we're going to experience joy and grace from God. We're going to experience joy and grace and strength in trials. Joy and grace and strength when temptation comes and we're resisting it. Joy as we tell people the good news and we get to see another person totally transformed by the gospel who once lived for sin and this world. And we get to play a part in that. And that is awesome. So grab your sword. We're in a war. Let's pray. If I could have the worship team come up. Lord, thank you most of all that we are on your side. Lord, we once were not on your side. We once delighted in sin and hated you. Thank you so much for rescuing us. Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying for us. And Lord, I pray for our all of us, that you would help us to fight this good fight of faith. Lord, the world has fallen. But we are sinful. And our enemy is fierce. But Lord, we know you win. And you promise to not lose any of us along the way. 
So we put our trust in you and our confidence in you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.